So um, uh, I've been in a little bit of a nostalgic mood lately, and uh, I was thinking about a Sunday that happened three years ago this summer. It was the summer of 2017. It was actually July 4th weekend, which is not a small weekend here in Prescott, if um, you don't realize. And we were in the middle of a series that summer on the book of Galatians, and it was called Jesus Plus Nothing. It was a great series, and I was, I was starting out the message that day, and I was talking about this, this theme called I Got This. My daughter was two at the time. She was exercising her independence and so with everything, it was, I got this, Papa, I got this, Papa, I got this, Papa. Um, and I had been using that same phrase, too, because my wife had dared me to go downtown. We were living in Phoenix to be a part of uh, Marine Week. And so I did this Marine workout with the Marines called a Combat Readiness Fit Test. And I passed the test, by the way. It was, it was an awesome experience. And so I, I told this story about this phrase, I got this. And we went through the whole 9 o'clock service. It was a great morning. Went out to the lobby, talked to people, came back for the 10.30 service, and things were going great again. I started telling the same story at the beginning of my second message, and then the fire alarm goes off. And my team thought it was really funny that I got this, and the fire alarm goes off. But, but by this point, people had realized that I, I have props on stage, and I do weird things, and that they thought it was like a bit in the sermon. You know, and I was like, no, this is not part of the show. This is real. So we evacuated the whole building. I mean, it was just, a, it was one of those, you know... This is my worst sermon ever, and, and so I, I brought a little video of the fire alarm going off here for you. By the way, this is not the actual alarm going off. This is a video, so don't evacuate the building. There's my slide right there. So it's, it's always funny when you tell people that you got this, and then you obviously don't because you have to leave the building. And I, I was thinking about this uh, in the middle of um, a day— and I'm sure you have these days, because I have these days, where if your day was a one-gallon bag, you have two gallons of stuff to fit in it, you know? You just have those days where you over-plan, you over and there's just no way you're going to get it all in. And my wife knows when those days are coming. She can see them a mile away. And uh, she texted me in the middle of my day, and she said, Hey, do you need me to get the kids? And I said, No. I got it. I got it. I got this. And uh, we go throughout the day. And then she calls me later and she goes, hey, are you going to get the kids on time? And I said, it's going to be a stretch. And she said, honey, do you want me to get the kids? And I said, yeah, you need the kids because I'm going to be late. And I paused and I said, when, when you texted me, do you need me to get the kids? Did you really mean, Scott, you need me to get the kids. Will you let me? And she said, yes. Well, why didn't you send that in the text? You know, like... And if you're not married, welcome to marriage. That's kind of how it goes sometimes. Um, and I'm slow, and it takes me a while to pick up on those things. But this phrase, I got this for me, is what I would summarize as my main stumbling block in my relationship with God. That self-sufficiency is the thing that for me, again and again, makes it hard for me to trust in and depend on God. Because if I'm honest with you, I really would much rather depend on myself than I would depend on him. I'd rather be self-sufficient than God-dependent. And we begin a road today that's going to take us over the next 40-ish days to Easter. And I think the best way to spend the road to Easter every year is to do two things. To do some self-reflection, like I've just been sharing with you, and to do some reflection on who Jesus is as we get ready to celebrate his death and his resurrection. 
And so today we're beginning a new series, and the series is called Signs and Wonders, an invitation to find real life in Jesus. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven key moments in the life of Jesus where he performs these signs and wonders that give us an indication of who he is and what he was about and what he was coming to do. And whether or not you're an avowed atheist or you've been in church every day since you were born, I think there is something here for you because Jesus is the most remarkable figure in human history. And you don't have to be a follower of Jesus to believe that. It's just true. I don't know what year you were born in, but if you can think of what year you were born in, that is that many years since the birth of Jesus. We divide time by his birth. We have before his birth and after his birth. Recently, we've changed the terms we use in our culture from B.C. before Christ and Anno Domini A.D. after the year of our Lord to before the common era and after the common era. But I'm sorry, the common era begins with the birth of Jesus. Um, when you're out playing golf and, uh, and somebody um, shanks a drive or you're working at your house and somebody hits their hammer with a thumb or somebody cuts you off in traffic, you don't scream Buddha and Mohammed. You scream two other words. And even values. History, historians will tell us that if you went back to the writings of ancient Greece and Rome, the greatest values of those that everyone wanted to be like were pride, vanity, ego, and glory. All the great heroes of the Greek world, all of the great heroes of the Roman world embodied these qualities. Until the first century of the Common Era, where humility became a popular value. Literally, you can trace our world's view on humility to the life of Jesus. Because before Jesus, we valued pride, ego, vanity, and glory until a man came and he said, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. The greatest among you should not be the one being served, but should be the one who is serving. And if you want to make a difference, he said, it's not about you. Jesus redefined our values. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelkin says it this way. He says, regardless of what anyone might think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the most dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. He goes on to say that if it were possible with some sort of super magnet, to pull out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? If you used a super magnet and you tried to pull all the metal of history out and every piece of metal was something that Jesus had touched or influenced and you pulled it all out, what would still be left when that was all said and done? It's impossible to understand the last 20 centuries of world history, especially in the West, without Jesus. And so what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is look at these seven signs and wonders that he performs to see what does it tell us about him. And this is a journey we're going to go through on Sundays, and we'd encourage you to be here. But there's also a component for you during the week. In your bulletin that you got when you walked in, there's a little card I want to draw your attention to. It looks like this. And tomorrow, we're going to begin an opportunity for us as a church to read through this book that we're studying on the road to Easter, the book of John. And so on the back, there's a set of scriptures for you to read Monday through Saturday each week. 
Sundays are catch-up days because I don't know about you, but I've never read the Bible according to a plan where I haven't fallen behind. It's just kind of math. And, uh, and so we've kind of built in those catch-up days for you. Most of the readings, almost all of them, will take you less than 10 minutes. But if you've never really decided what you believe about Jesus, why not read him in his own words? Why not evaluate him based on what he said and what he did? And so we'd encourage you to begin going through this. There's extra copies in the lobby if you want to grab one for a friend before you leave. But today we're going to begin with the first sign that Jesus gives us, the first wonder. And we're going to learn from it a really basic principle. And that's our big idea this morning. That Jesus offers us real, eternal life before death. See, most of us have, have gotten the idea over the years that eternal life is what happens after we die. But what we're going to begin to see today through the passage we're going to study is that the life that Jesus offers us is not a life that begins after this life ends. It's a life that begins now. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up or turn it on and go to the the book of John chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, the, the latter, latter one-third of the Bible is what's called the New Testament, and it begins with Matthew, and then it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to be in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And uh, because these are the, the words of Scripture, and many of them are the words of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we honor God's Word this morning. If you didn't bring your Bible, you can just follow along on the screen. It says, beginning in verse 1, that on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Heavenly Father, we pray that over the next seven weeks that we would see you and your glory clearly. And we pray that you'd speak to us clearly, that we might discover the real life you're inviting us into. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. If you have your your bulletin in there is a handout, you can follow along this morning. And, And in that handout, there's four perspective shifts that I want to encourage us to take because what you have to remember is no matter how long you have known the name of Jesus, No matter how long you've been familiar with the church, no matter how much you think you know about Jesus, the one thing I know is this, you don't see the world the way that he does. 
And no matter how long you follow Jesus, this side of heaven, there will always be a gap between his perspective and your perspective. There's some days that I feel like that gap is, for me, as big as the Grand Canyon. But to see Jesus, you need to see the world the way that he does. And that's our first perspective shift, is that what seems like a crisis for us is often an opportunity for Jesus. What, what, what gets us nervous, anxious, and turned into knots because we feel like it's a crisis is often what Jesus says, this is my greatest opportunity. This story, this, this sign is set in a wedding. How many people in this room have been to a wedding before? Raise your hand. Okay, so you guys have all been to a wedding. Uh, your understanding of weddings is nothing like the wedding Jesus went to. Just that's the first thing you have to know. See, when you think of, of modern weddings, you think of um, people sweating guest lists, people trying to keep things under budget, people buying clothes that they will never, ever wear ever again, um, people, you know, trying to figure out how can we get by with spending the least amount of money on food, but still it actually tastes good. You know, there's all these concerns, and an and American modern wedding lasts one day. Maybe if you're involved, it's like two days of the rehearsal or three days of the party, but it's, it's rarely more than a weekend. But for the day that Jesus lived in, the wedding that happens at Cana, it's not one day. It's seven. And you don't just invite the people that you like or that you can get away with. You have to invite without them being angry with you or frustrated with you. In the day of Jesus, the entire community was involved and invited to the wedding. Everybody. Everybody that you lived with, everybody that was near you, everybody, anybody comes to the wedding. It's a massive gathering for seven days. That's a long wedding. It's a busy week. And in the day of Jesus, the reputation of the family is on the line based upon the kind of wedding they throw. It's a sign of the family's generosity and character and value. So if you're throwing a week-long party and the honor of your family is on the line, when the word gets out that they have no wine, this is not just a wine problem. This means that everyone in that community will now look down on your family as people who lack love, generosity, and care. As I said, you've you got to change your perspective about this because for them, this wasn't just, hey, we'll, we'll serve something else to drink. We'll go down to the store and buy more. No, this was, this was going to be a black mark on this family forever. And so Jesus' mother, Mary, turns to Jesus and says, hey, they have no wine. This is a crisis. This is a problem. And Jesus says to her, he says, woman. Now, now again, if you turn to the woman in your life today and you say, woman, <laughs> you know how that's going to go. But in that culture, that word was not a term of derision or dishonor. It was a term of respect. And Jesus speaks to his mother and he says, Woman, my hour has not yet come. I'm not here to just perform parlor tricks and make sure people don't run out of wine. I have a bigger purpose. And I always thought when I read this passage before I did recently that, that what Mary did was manipulative. 
That what Mary did is try to basically twist Jesus into doing what she wanted. And I think that's because I grew up in a non-Catholic world where we're trying to make sense of Mary and not worship her, but make her human. And I think what Mary does is not manipulative or evil. I think what she does is honorable and worth following an example. She raises her hand, she calls the servants over, and she tells them, do whatever he tells you. She's surrendering to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you know what's best. So guys, whatever he tells you is best, do it. She's trusting Jesus, that Jesus knows better than her. And if you're in the middle of a crisis today, the hardest thing for you is going to believe that whatever Jesus does is what's best. Because while you're in a crisis, and I know this from personal experience, you think you know what's best. And that's what you're telling Jesus to do when you pray. Jesus, I need you to do this. Jesus, this is what's best. Jesus, this is what needs to happen. Jesus, this is the right thing in this situation. And what Mary does is she doesn't tell Jesus what to do. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Interesting thing I discovered this week when I was studying this text, that that word there, servants, in the Greek is, is the word parakletos. And, and that word struck me as I, I know that word. See, the word paraclete is also the word that's used later by Jesus in John 16 to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the helper, the servant, the one who does what God wants. So she calls these servants, the same name that God would later use to describe his spirit that he left us to do whatever he wanted to. So my question for you is this, to make this real real and real practical. In the crisis that you're feeling today, what are you praying for God to do? What is it that thing they're saying, God, this is what I need you to do. God, this is what I need you to make happen. God, I'm pleading with you. This is what I want you to do in this circumstance. And once you have that answered, here's the second question. Who gets the glory if that prayer is answered? And whose agenda advances? See, that's what's really hard. Sometimes we get in a crisis and we discover what we want and we have to step back and go, is that because that's my agenda or is that because that's God's agenda? If God answers that prayer, do I get the glory or does God? And I'm, I'm still figuring out all the dynamics of following Jesus in my limited experience, though, the kinds of prayers that God tends to not answer are the kind that advance selfish agendas and where other people get the glory that is due him. The kind of prayers that God longs to answer are the ones that are sacrificed and submitted to his agenda and the ones when he gets the glory. So the first shift is you've got to see this not as a crisis but as an opportunity. Number two, what Jesus is doing here is he's making all things new. 
Jesus is about to show what he is going to do in the chapters and years to come in his public ministry. And it says that he calls these servants, these parakletos in verse 6, to, to take the jars that are, see, that are sit, see, sitted or sitting outside of the home and empty and bring them to him. These six jars. Now, I have a jar here, and it's not nearly that large, but, but the jars that Jesus was speaking of um, would be 20 or 30 gallons in size. These are massive jars. And they were traditionally used for ceremonial hand-washing. So when you went into someone's home in that day, you were seen as unclean. And so what you would do is, is you would take your hands and you'd put your hands in some water, your fingertips, and then you would shake them off, clean them, and then you'd be clean temporarily to go into the home and eat a meal. Was part of the culture and the tradition that was set up in the Old Testament to, to govern hand-washing. Long before there was coronavirus, they were worried about hand-washing. And, and so you'd go in the house and you'd celebrate the, the night. But what Jesus does is he takes these jars that are now empty, and he says, fill them up. And it says they fill them to the brim. And so if they were 30-gallon jars, they would have had... Uh, 250 pounds of water in each of them. Massive jars. And then it says that the, the water had become wine. And it says the servants stuck a, a, a ladle down into the, what they thought was water, and they went down and it was water, and they came back, and it was, it was wine. And they, they took a, a glass of wine into the master of the banquet, or the, the person in charge of coordinating this week-long party. And he tastes the wine, and he has a mind-blowing moment. Because he's expecting to drink two-buck chuck. <laughs> and instead, he finds that it's top-shelf aged wine. The scriptures say this. It says it right there in your Bible. It says that typically at a party, you serve the good wine first, and then when everyone has drunk freely translation, they can't tell what they're drinking anymore because they're so drunk. Then you serve the cheap stuff because it doesn't matter. But this is a different kind of party, and this is a different kind of Jesus. He doesn't make bad wine. He makes the best wine. Now, it does say in the text that the master of the, the party did not know where the wine came from. In parentheses, it says, but the people who served it did. Because the wine was made out of the jars where everyone had stuck their fingers before. So if he knew that, he probably would have spit the wine out. And I'm saying this for our newly returned germ-aware worship director, wherever you are in here, Jamie. You would not have drank this wine because of that. But what Jesus does here is he's making a very clear symbol. He's taking... The very thing that was a symbol of the old way of relating to God. That at the moment was empty. And he's saying, this is the old way you related to me. You used to stick your hands in here, wash them, and temporarily you were clean. But what I'm doing is I am filling that empty jar and that empty way of cleaning yourself with new wine. 
that is a symbol later on, he would tell us, of his blood. That doesn't temporarily clean us, but permanently forgives us. He's taking an old symbol and he's making it new. He's taking an old method and he's making it new. He's taking something that had to be done again and again and again and again. And he says, what's about to happen here is I'm about to do something that once and for all solves this problem. The biblical word for this is covenant. An agreement where both parties have responsibilities or commitments. In the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, God made a covenant with his people and said, I will be faithful to you if you will be faithful to me. But we see here what happens, that the people were not faithful to God and they broke that old covenant. And so now a new covenant, a new agreement is being introduced, not based upon humans' ability to keep it, but based upon God's ability to do for humans what they couldn't do themselves. Later on in his life, Jesus will say this, and he took a cup, Jesus did, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is taking what is old, and he's making it new. And in doing it, we see number three. Jesus is exposing the myth of self-sufficiency. To all of us who for thousands of years have said, I got this. Jesus is saying, no, you don't. In John 2, 11, this passage ends with a summary. It says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, now we don't know what, what they actually believed in in totality. Did they understand he was going to die on the cross from their sins and, and raised from the dead? No, they didn't believe that. But they believed that he had the power to turn water into wine and that something more significant than just good wine was being done here. Because what we're seeing here is that in this world, they expected that when you did these external practices, it would lead to an eternal relationship with God. That when you came and you put your hands in the water, if you did it enough times and you were consistent enough, then you could have hope that eternally you would live with God. But what he's doing here is saying, hey, that was never intended to be a permanent solution. It was always intended to be a temporary solution that one day God would make new and permanent and final. In the book of Hebrews, it says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent as the old, as the covenant he mediates is better because it's enacted on better promises. We can do our best to wash our hands and be faithful and practice and do all of the right external practices, but in the end, those are only temporary means of accomplishing what Jesus is going to do permanently to save us and forgive us and make us new. And what Jesus does here is he begins to give a sign of what's ahead by taking something that for years had been a sign of God's blessing and favor— Now, there's been so much teaching over the years in churches many of you have been in on wine that I could spend weeks kind of unpacking it. But let me just do it really simply here. If you read the Bible, two-thirds of the references to wine in the Bible are positive. They're a symbol of God's favor. When you read the Bible, if you take all the references to wine from the entire thing, from Genesis to Maps, and you put them all together, two-thirds of them are positive. Let me give you an example of this in Isaiah 25. 
The prophet writes, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So God is doing something here, and he's using wine as the symbol that when I take away their sins, when I restore this relationship, wine is a symbol of that good thing that God is doing. Now, I grew up in a, in a tradition, the Southern Baptist tradition, that has a, a, a very kind of standoffish relationship with wine. I was taught even, not by my parents, but by a Sunday school teacher, that the wine in the Bible didn't really have alcohol in it. It was different wine, which does not work in so many Bible passages, but especially this one. And so you have to understand that when the Scripture is using wine, so often it's referenced to positive. Yet the Bible does make it very clear that, that we aren't to get drunk with wine. In Ephesians 5, it says, Don't get drunk with wine, for that is wickedness, corruption, stupidity. I love the Amplified Bible here. But be filled with the Holy Spirit and constantly guided by Him. So please don't go home and say, The pastor just gave me a recommendation and drink wine all day, every day for the rest of my life. No. But if you read the Bible, you have to understand that what God is using here as a symbol, he's saying was intended to be given as a gift. And like all of God's gifts, wine and otherwise, his humanity has a tendency to turn it into something that, to, that abuse and become addicted to and become an idol. If I could say it no other way than this, what, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, this is the old way you related to me where you did these things externally, you did these practices, you cleansed your hands, and that's the way that you were made right and whole and cleansed before God. But in this new way, it's not something you do externally, it's this thing that happens to you. It's not something you do, it's something I do to you. It's not something that you do with your hands and you earn it in your self-sufficiency. No, you don't have the sufficiency, so something is done for you and to you. In 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, and therefore, behold, the new has come. And this is why I, I hammered that phrase, I get this in the beginning. Because you have to admit that you don't got this in order to say, I need help. And, and maybe for you, what you're going to discover on the road to Easter is what I am continually being reminded of, that as long as I think I've got it and I'm okay, I don't need help, I'm not just a barrier to relationships with people. I'm the obstacle in my relationship with God. And to be made new, I have to admit that I don't got this. And maybe for you, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, maybe for you, it isn't the biggest stretch for you to believe that God could turn water into wine. Maybe the bigger stretch is for you to believe that God could make you new. Some of you are like, I can't believe that people in the 21st century believe that some guy 2,000 years ago turned water into wine. That isn't the hardest thing to believe. The harder thing to believe is that God could make me and even you new.
that God could take all the things that you have done or not done in your past. That God could take all the things that you are proud of and ashamed of. And he could take all of that and make it new. That's the real hard miracle to believe. And what Jesus is doing here is he's showing that only happens when we come to the end of ourselves. The final thing this this passage reveals, this perspective shift, is that Jesus is offering us an immediate invitation, not a future one. Jesus is offering us an invitation today. This whole series uh, comes out of a verse at the end of the book of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. In the NIV, John writes, Jesus performs many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So you got to understand, Jesus did more miracles than we actually have record of. But John continues, but these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Essentially, saying, there's two reasons why I wrote this biography of Jesus. One, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you haven't been told, Christ is not his last name. Like, Savage is my last name. Christ is his title. It means Messiah, Savior. And two, that by believing in that name, you may have life in his name. Now, life is a big theme for John. At the beginning of his book, he writes, In him was life. And that life was the light of men. In John 10.10, he says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. That word life in the Greek is the word zoe. Say zoe. I should make sure you're awake. The absolute fullness of life, life real and genuine, a life active and vigorous. And, and, the, and the challenge is that for many of us who've been in the church, we think the invitation Jesus is offering us is to eternal zoe after we die. And so for many of us, this is the picture we have of the amazing life that God offers us. We're we're born. We don't know Christ. We believe in Jesus for salvation. Then we die, and then eternal life begins. And then we're just stuck waiting here in this kind of indefinite period for our eternal life with God to begin. I don't know about you. But why would I give up the life that I have right now for this? That's the great scandal of the Christian testimony. Is that for so many people, they're waiting on their life to begin after they die while everyone else around them is going, you're missing out on your life now. No, the truth, according to what Jesus said, is that eternal life begins before you die, not after you die. He says, I I came and I wrote this down, John says, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. Not one day, but now. Friends, Jesus did not come to give us eternal life one day. He came to give us real life today. And once you recognize that what Jesus is offering you is not a delayed future invitation, it's an immediate one, everything changes. Because your eternal life with him does not start when you die. It can start today. 
because what he did in those empty clay pots, he wants to do in you. And he wants to make you new now. So if that's true, there's some steps that I want to encourage you to take and on the back of your handout this morning. Number one, I want you to do a heart check this week and ask yourself, where has my ego and self-sufficiency kept me from experiencing the real life that Jesus is offering me? Because if you think you've got life covered on your own, you don't need Jesus's real life. And for many of us, we think that the block is with Jesus, that he's holding out on us, when the truth may be that we're looking to ourselves more than we're looking to him. Number two, identify a crisis you're facing or have recently faced and reflect on how that crisis is also an opportunity. And here's what I'd, I'd say to you. Go home, get a piece of paper, draw a line across the top and a line in the middle. Write crisis, write opportunity. You could already list now all the ways this is a crisis. You've lost sleep over them last night, you know? But what I want you to do is think about what could this be an opportunity for God to do? How might God work? How might God redeem this? How might God work through this? Number three, I want you to pray for Jesus to reveal himself to you in new and fresh ways between now and Easter. For some of us, our problem is not that we don't know Jesus. Our problem is we think we know Jesus and we don't know Jesus. The whole familiarity breeds contempt, which could be continued. Familiarity breeds contempt, which breeds unfamiliarity. So maybe you need to ask God, help me to become unfamiliar with you and see you in a new way. And then number four, identify and pray for someone that you want to find real life in Jesus. Six weeks ago, we gave you a post-it note in your bulletin, and we asked you to pray for somebody that God put in your life for you to help and take a step towards Jesus. Do you still have the post-it note? And if not, maybe you need to write a new one and begin praying, God, I don't just want to discover you afresh and anew for myself. There's a person in my life that I want you to use me to discover you afresh and anew.